Father in heaven, I just pray, Lord, for your mercy uh, as we walk through these situations, um, that you would give us illumination from your spirit to see them clearly, to pay attention, to observe everything that we can, to interpret successfully and correctly, considering all things. Uh, just asking, Father, for your grace in this entire time, that we would come to a better understanding of what your word says. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. So, if you have your Bible and you want to use it as well, especially if it's a different translation other than the New American Standard, uh, that would be good because that's what these printouts are. The printouts are New American Standard, okay? Now, if you notice, what I've done here is I've included the section that we're looking at, and I have given you double spaces for the purpose of marking. So, I encourage you to get your pen out, be ready to mark some things, to show some word relations, that type of thing. And we will just walk through each one of these passages. Matthew 8, Matthew 22, Matthew 25 are the three chapters that bring up the concept of outer darkness. It is not found in any other chapter in the Bible. Only Matthew is the one who brings it up. So, obviously that's something drastically important for us to understand. So, who would like to read for us chapter 8, verses 1 through 13? It's one of the first things you want to do anytime you're studying the Word, is immediately you want to read the section in full of what you're looking at, so you get the wide, synthetic understanding, and then we will hone in and do the analytical work. Excellent, thank you. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. <coughs> And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Okay. So now the first thing we want to do is we want to ask ourselves, where are the natural transitions in this small passage that we've laid out here? Okay. So if you notice, verse 1 And again, with the New American Standard, what's beautiful is is the bold-faced numbers tell you where a paragraph or an idea starts. That helps eliminate some of the guesswork from the manuscripts they used. But verse 1 tells us what? Jesus had been up on the mountain. Right? 
large cloud, crowd followed him. What happens right before chapter 8, verse 1? Prince of the leper. What's that? Chapter 8, verse 7. No. Never mind. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Yeah. What happens in chapter 7? What is chapters 5, 6, and 7? Yeah, go ahead and open your Bibles. Tells me how well you listened today during church, right? It was alluded to this today. Yeah. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So if you notice what happens at that moment, let me see here. Um, In chapter 7, verse 28, I'm reading out of the old 1977 New American Standard. The result that was when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So remember, he went up on the mountain, he withdrew from the crowds at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. He withdrew from there, he went up, the disciples came to him, he took a seat, they stood, he began teaching them, and then it seems like what happened at that time was where the crowds, people, made their way up the mountain and were coming in on his teaching. So now he comes down off of the mountain, notice, and a large crowd is now following him in this situation. And so the next question we have to ask is, is the situation starting in chapter 8 verse 2, Regarding the leper, does that going to have an effect in any way whatsoever on the conclusion of what we're looking at at outer darkness? Now, you might say, wait a second, we're here to talk about outer darkness. Why in the world are we backing up like this? Because context is everything. Now, we may find that the situation with the leper has no bearing. We may find that the situation with the leper actually has a lot of bearing. But we need to find out what the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us. So, verse 2. And and I'm going to just draw a little line above two, and I'm going to write the word leper, just because that's where this happens, maybe underline the word leper. Leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And I think that word immediately is important, if for no other reason than it gets us away from the health, wealth, and prosperity people, because it'll take place after a while. Verse 4, and Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, that's the end of that incident. So I'm going to draw another line and I'm going to write the word leper right before five. And that way I know, maybe connect them or something like that. I know that this situation of 2, 3, and 4 deals with the situation of the leper. So, mark it however you want, but here's what I've got so far. You don't have to mark it like me. You know, you don't. The fact is you got pen out and you're into the text, and so that's what's important. So now look at verse 5, and notice verse 5 is boldface number, right? So we know that this started a new thing in the manuscript. It said, and when Jesus entered Capernaum. Now, real quick, Capernaum, location. That's important. That's where he's at when this teaching takes place. A centurion came to him, imploring him. Now, two things. Number one, what was a centurion? A Roman uh, soldier. Okay, so notice a centurion is a Roman, and I would actually slash Gentile. And enemy. Soldier, yes. Would be considered by the Jews to be an enemy. The, 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 The centurion's one of them kind of ideas. From the Jewish um, 
I don't know. They're hard-nosed view of those types of things. But we Jews are under the Romans' thumb here. so Exactly, exactly. So notice, a centurion came to him, and what does it say? What did he do? Imploring. imploring him. What does the word imploring mean? Begging. Begging him is the idea. In fact, if any of you have got... Uh, a Bible app on your phone. I brought a Strong's Concordance to go through if we need to look everything up or what have you. Uh, but going through here and, and finding this, the idea of imploring is begging Jesus. Okay? Beseeching. Beseeching? Would probably be the same idea. In fact, this is something else, isn't it? A Gentile soldier. I mean, think about that. We're talking full clad armor, weapons. Probably got maybe a, a, a host of, of soldiers that are with him, that are always with him. If he's a centurion, he's a pretty high-ranking individual. But here he comes before this poor Jewish rabbi, and he's begging this Jew to do something about his situation. Now, that's interesting. That's an act of humility if you've ever seen one. Because the centurion had every reason to be proud. Look what it says in saying, Lord. <laughs> that's interesting, is it not? The first address, Lord. It's is one it, of respect and reverence. Go is ahead. It, is that in a sense of Adonai or Yahweh? Uh, we don't know because it yeah. would be kurios in the Greek. Yeah. Adonai and Yahweh would only be distinguishable in the Hebrew understanding. And of. I wondered that with uh, the leper 2 and verse 2. Yeah, yeah only, only in the Hebrew understanding would we have that they're having to phrase the name of God that way. Yeah. But Lord in the New Testament is always translated by the Greek word kurios, and it's the idea of master. Yeah. Okay. So The centurion must have... Observed this. He must have had something going on. I mean, there were, there was, I mean, and we're going to see that in just a second. Don't steal the thunder, Laverne. Okay. You're good. Okay. So, real quick, in chapter five, imploring him, I'm going to, I'm going to touch on this uh, word here on my phone, and it's going to pop up a handy dandy. Now, this is really interesting. It's the Greek word parakaleo, if you want to write it down. So, it's P A R A, P A R A, K A. L E long O Paracaleo and the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16 is known as the Paraclete, the advocate. Notice that the comforter, uh, the one who pleads a case is the idea. So Paracaleo has the idea of, let me read for you the definition, to call to one. What word are you referring this to? Imploring. Okay. To call. To summon, to entreat or beseech. Mike, you're going to need these papers here. <laughs> so notice it's the idea of really um, wanting to get his attention, get him involved. There's eight. There's Thank 25. You. Thank you. And then there's 22. There's two of them. No, there's just one for okay, 22. 25 is good. Yeah. Okay, imploring him. Verse 6 and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, what does that tell you that's going on? He's in pain. Well, he's in pain? Worried about death. What's, okay, hold on. Because everybody talked at one time. Possessed. Okay, so it could be the idea of demon possession, maybe demon oppression. We'll have to wait and see, okay? But the idea is that it seems to be very clear that there's demonic activity involved, and the centurion recognizes this. Fearfully tormented. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Could we say that maybe we're assuming something with the demonic idea of that? Maybe. Maybe. But the idea of being paralyzed, not able to move, notice that wasn't from an accident. Notice they didn't fall and hit something in their spine that rendered them unable to move or anything like that. We don't have any of that. It seems like that something was going on here to where it caused a panic in a torturous situation for this servant of his. Okay? And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Very plain, yes? Okay, notice that he comes to Jesus asking for Jesus to make the difference. Verse 8, but, now anytime I see but, I underline it twice. Because but is going to give me a shift in the text. My mind needs to think something different's going on. But the centurion said, Lord, notice he addresses him that way is, again, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now, if that's anything, that's a sober self-evaluation. Okay? So I'm actually going to mark that and write that. Sober self evaluation. I'm not able I'm not I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but double underline. Just say the what? Word. Word and my servant will be healed. Now pause for just a second because this is a profound situation. A Gentile who would be considered of the world under a domineering regime who probably had no background whatsoever in Old Testament folklore, oral history, scrolls and writings. He wasn't attending the temple, uh, anything like that. It wasn't passed on. It wasn't the Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach these things to your children situation. Nothing like that. Something happened to where this centurion understood something about Jesus that the very people that he was their promised Messiah did not grasp. And it's interesting. Just say the word. Notice, where's the power? The power's in his word. If you just say the word, regardless of your location, when you speak, it's done. That's amazing. Faith. Faith. It's the conviction of the centurion. Notice, say the word, and my servant will be healed. You don't even have to come and touch him. We don't even have to load you up on a camel or a donkey or what have you and get you there. Just say it. You're not even worth being, or sorry, I'm not even worth you being at my house. But I know that if you speak, all will be well. That's pretty, that's, a, that's huge. It really is huge. Sober self-evaluation, but yet relentless belief. Everybody see that? Okay, now watch this. For, now real quick, anytime that you see the word for, this is your causal conjunction, okay? So what I do is I give it a really heavy underline, a real heavy underline, maybe two or three underlines, and then I, I go ahead and black in everything that's in between. I bring a little arm out there, and I do a little arrow. And let me just draw it for you, kind of what I do here. I black it in, just so everybody can see it. And I do one of these under four. Okay, so if four was right here, four... I black it in underneath real heavy. I stick a little arm out there and I point an arrow up. And here's the reason why. is because that tells you that whatever statement was just made is going to get more details, more explanation, more unfolding. You're going to be able to comprehend better the reason why somebody said what they said. And if you will use that tool when you're reading through Romans, you will not get lost in Romans. Very important. 
So notice what he says. For I also am a man under authority. Also. Don't miss that. Also. He recognized. He recognizes what about Jesus? Whose authority is he under? His father's authority. I don't do anything apart from the father. Notice that. I only tell you what my father says. I came to do my father's will. Not my will be done, but yours, right? So notice the emphasis on an authority structure. Notice it's the father's will. He recognizes, and here's the interesting thing that you need to understand about this. Was Jesus a great leader? People follow him. Okay. Was he a great teacher? Yes. Notice he was also something else that we don't hear about in, in circles that involve great teachers and leaders. He was a great submissive person. The authority of the Father was recognized in his life because he was a man of submission. And this is what helps make passages like Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm not talking about wives and husbands. I'm talking about back up a few verses before that and talk about how submission should be the mutual attitude within the body of Christ between believers. Our submission to government authorities and the laws of the land, as long as they're not calling for us to violate Scripture, should be unrelenting. Why is that? Because we are demonstrating the great authority of God as our master. And we're letting Jesus take care of all the details. We get so worked up about whether things are going to happen. If you don't donate now to the RNC, then Trump won't get reelected. Good grief. Our hopes are not in those people. What in the world are we thinking? Nobody's got answers to that stuff. We are to be submissive to the authority of God. Period. Submissive people. I recognize your submission. That's what's interesting. So with that in mind, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. I wish my son would read this verse. <laughs> I just do. He was pretty good for me today. That's excellent. Probably because you're not dad. You're not dad. You're fun. So anyway. Now notice this. Now, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he stopped for a second. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Surprised Jesus. God is surprised. Now, that's not me adding something. That's what the text says. Jesus hears this man respond, and he goes, eyebrows go up. Can you imagine doing something to raise Jesus' eyebrows? That's insane. I just hope it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, me too. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure I've made Jesus eyebrows. I'm, I'm sure I do a lot of things that make his eyebrows right. So notice, he marveled. And, yeah. And, and real quick here, let me go ahead and, and, and since this word captures our attention, let me make sure that we're looking at it correctly. To wonder is the idea. Jesus was in wonder of this man. Right, not surprised. Not Well, he wasn't surprised. No, I don't think he was surprised at all, of course. Right. But the idea of, wow. Finally somebody who gets it. Yes, that's probably what it was. It was probably a great vindication of all this hard-heartedness and hard-headedness he'd been all being. Of and, of, and of all the people to get it, 
was probably a person who was the least educated of everyone he'd been talking to so far. Once again, it's the polar opposite showing God. Yes. Then you see that all through Scripture, all the time. Yes. God uses the absolute polar opposite of what we think should be used. Yes. To prove his point and to prove who he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a this is a huge moment that we need to take note of. Because what makes Jesus marvel? Notice, and he marveled and said to those who were following. Now, I love it. Because if you're like me, you want to look back and you want to go, do you see this, guys? Are you paying attention? You know, I want to have like this attitude about it. Notice that Jesus doesn't get an attitude about it. Notice that he says, he, he looked to those who were following. He said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such, here it is, great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, why does he say it that way? Because that is the opposite that points out the Gentile. Everybody see that? The Jew and the Gentile, that dichotomy there. That's important to see that. It's a Jew-Gentile situation. Out of everybody that he had come across who had the previous 39 books of the Old Testament testifying to his coming, he stood in front of one guy who said, I get it. You're somebody under authority and you have authority and you can dish out authority and so all I need is your word and it will be done. Jews couldn't get that. They couldn't understand that. They couldn't grasp it. They were so wound up in their religious system that they couldn't see past their rights and their wrongs, their their sins and their righteousness in order to see Jesus was the answer to all of it. It's incredible. So now remember, what is the trigger moment that makes Jesus marvel? It's the fact that this man had what? Not just faith. Great faith. That's important. He believed, period. He believed... That Jesus didn't have to do anything but speak, and wherever his servant was, which was a place where Jesus was not, so obviously travels implied, he didn't even need to come and darken his doorstep. He just needed to say it, and wherever this man was, he was going to be healed. Now that's that's huge faith. He actually believed it. Now watch what happens here. Verse 11. Jesus is going to use this as a teaching moment, and he's going to elaborate on this section. I say to you that many, that's important, many will come from east and west and recline. And notice that at the table is filled in. It's an italic. So we want to, what I do with the italics thing is I just circle the words lightly that are in italics. And I just put little, barely legible slashes through them so I can still read it, but it's bringing to my mind, that's not here, the translators put it there, just so it doesn't mess me up or sway me in any way, okay? It says here, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Stop. This verse is huge, okay? And notice what's going on here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are they? They are the patriarchs. We know all about them from Genesis. We know about 
Abraham's great faith in offering up Isaac. We know about Isaac receiving a wife from a far-off country who was actually a relation to his in some way. We know about Jacob wrestling with the angel. We know about him calling his 12 sons and pronouncing prophecy over them before he passed away. We get all this, right? Now look what it says. I say to you that many will come from east and west. What is he talking about there, east and west? All over the world. Maybe. Everywhere. Well, who is everyone? Jews and Gentiles. Goyim. If they come from the east and west, they take it the Gentiles, people from all over. It would probably be just predominantly Gentiles that he's bringing up here. And why is that? Because the Jews are the sector in which he is operating in. And remember, what is the back and forth here? The centurion has great faith, and he's a Gentile. He's a pagan. The Jews have all this knowledge and understanding, and they're not getting it. They're missing it. Everybody see that? So Jesus' comment here is actually extremely provocative. Why is that? Gentiles, east and west, or if you want to put the nations, many will come from the nations, and they are going to recline at the table. Now, what's that mean, recline at the table? Think about it. That's a big deal. Like this, right? I'm afraid I'm falling. That's how the Jews ate around the table. Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, John in the bosom of Jesus. Yes. And who are they sharing a meal with? Exactly. The greatly revered progenitors of the Jewish race. I'm feeling relaxed about it. Exactly. They're completely at home in this entire situation with him. Where's the location? In, not heaven. It says the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Just because, notice it says the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom in heaven. That's important. There is no kingdom that will be in heaven. That kingdom comes down to rest upon earth. It is the righteous rule of Jesus Christ when he returns. So notice, there's going to be a situation here where Gentiles are going to be involved, sitting at the same table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When the kingdom comes, they are going to be eating together. That was like a sign of close, intimate fellowship, camaraderie, whatever you want to say. Is that uh, it, it will be during the millennium, yes. That's when the kingdom will come, after the tribulation. So now watch what happens here. Verse 12, what's the word? But. But. Uh Uh-oh. Double underline. But. Now watch this. The sons of the kingdom. There's a particular, specific people. Who are the sons of the kingdom? That is your trivia question to come back with answers for next week. Who are the sons of the kingdom? Get out of concordance, download your literal word, tap on there and find out where else the idea of sons of the kingdom is mentioned in the Bible. See what you can find. Always use context to determine details. The first question you want to ask yourself is, is where else is this phrase used, this designation used in the Gospel of Matthew? And if you can... If you can narrow it there and find that Matthew's using it the same way that Jesus is using it here, you've done a really great job. And the reason is is because Matthew didn't write anything else but his gospel. So that's all we have to go off of with how Matthew would have viewed this. Okay, We're going to try to stay in that gospel before we look outside of it. So 
But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, in what place? Okay, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to underline place, and I want you to draw a little line that comes back to and points an arrow at the outer darkness so that you are designating what the place is. Now notice, in that place, that location, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is an emotion, not a location. So every time you see weeping and gnashing of teeth, we don't need to say, well, that's because they're here. That may be because they're there, or it may be because they did something dumb. Or it may be because they're experiencing loss at some point. Or it could be because we don't know. It's an emotional reaction. It's not directly linked into a location. You say, well, aren't there some places in the Bible where weeping and gnashing of teeth are connected with hell? You tell me. I'd be weeping and gnashing my teeth too if I was in hell. You would be. But just because there's weeping and gnashing teeth, does that always necessitate that you're in hell? But it says here that you're already in the kingdom. Okay, notice that. We have to deal with the idea of the fact that something is happening in the kingdom and that there is an outer darkness that's going on where weeping and gnashing of teeth is taking place. Matthew twenty-two thirteen. Okay, don't kill it. <laughs> you you are astute. You're all over. You got you got fast fingers, buddy. So notice. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to write next to that that it's an emotion. And you can compare some of these things on your own in between our Sunday classes. So it can be weeping and gnashing of teeth because... Because why? Don't, no, 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 no. You're stepping into interpretation. We're only concerned with observation right now. You are trying to go ahead and tack a meaning onto it before we're ready to do that. Don't do that. Not yet. Just observe everything. Observe word relation. Observe the players involved. Observe the examples. Observe the truth that's going on. Now, here's the interesting thing I want you to think about real quick. I want you to think about the fact that verse 11 is prophecy. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. Notice that Jesus is telling us something that will definitely happen in the future. There will be many who will come from east and west and they're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's a fact. It's going to happen. And you I'm said, sorry, Mary. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to ruffle your feathers. But let's just observe. Let's just observe. And here's the reason why. If we run so quickly to interpret and we don't spend the time taking in everything because I want us to observe all three passages before we dive into what does it mean. Because you may find that if the word is used in other places, it's going to help you understand one another. Why? Because Matthew wrote his book as a whole. Matthew never put chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 9. He never did that. He wrote it as a cohesive whole that was meant to be read all together. And so the thought process of the person would have been tracking these things as they read his gospel all the way through. Can you hear me? Yes. Those being cast out were in already. Possibly. Just like if you were going to be falling away, you'd have to be to something in order to fall away from it. I can't fall out of the chair if I never sat down in it. That's a way to look at it. Can I mention Israel? You can if you like. The but children? Is that Israel? I don't know. Children cut off? We're, we're going to wait. 
Okay. <laughs> no, and here's the thing. Notice what you just did. The children cut off. Nothing in the passage says anything about being cut off. That's here. Not in Matthew 8. Oh, no. Well, 12. <laughs> Matthew 8, 12? No. It says cast out. This is Matthew 8. This oh. says Israel cut off. In my... Yeah, in the notes. In your margin? Yeah. Okay. But you have to be careful about... You do have to be careful about... And I don't have my Bible open, so I'm not looking at those little helps. I'm just I'm just using just the paper. I'm just observing first. Everybody see how much deeper Bible study can go when our minds want to just run? Now, let's watch this. There's weeping and gnashing teeth. Verse 13, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have... Oh, man, there's the great faith. And the servant was healed that moment. Everybody see it? Okay. What verse you? Verse 13, the very end. Now, Jesus has just made a very provocative statement in verses 11 and 12. What prompted him to turn to the crowds of people? Now, who were following him? Do we know predominantly who they were? Probably Jews. Probably Jews. Disciples were there in the mix, so they're already followers of Christ. But he says something very provocative in response to the centurion's great faith. There's something about the great faith that is exercised that causes Jesus to immediately turn it into a teaching session. There's something he wants to get across, which means the great faith has a very uh, weighty difference that is being made in this situation. Now, I don't know about you, but it makes me sit here and think, why would the nations from the east and the west come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven? Why would they be there? What would cause that for them to be in a dining capacity with them? Chances are the fact that it's they had great faith. Does everybody see that? The great faith triggers a teaching moment for Jesus. And so he teaches the people that were following. Notice he doesn't teach the centurion. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he's teaching the people and he's using the centurion as an example. We don't know that. But obviously there's something about the centurion that needs to be noticed at this moment. Does everybody see it? Gosh, this is fun stuff. I love it. Now don't get too ahead of yourself, but here's some things that you want to think about. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the Charles Stanley thing so you can read through it. Who are the sons of the kingdom? That's important to know. What is the outer darkness? I'm going to do some research on that. Now I'm going to give you Charles Stanley's little part here. Don't just take Charles Stanley's word for it. He's a highly educated man who loves the Lord probably more than most. But that doesn't mean he's always right. Sound good? Everybody leaving dissatisfied today. That's my hopes. My hope is everybody's like, I want more, I want more. There we go. Take one down, pass it around. If you wouldn't mind, could I pray for us? We'll pick up next week. We'll talk about what you found in Matthew 8, and then we'll move on to Matthew 22. We'll observe everything there and see how things are unfolding, and if there's anything noteworthy we need to pay attention to so that we can come to a good conclusion. Anybody got any questions or anything? I love it. Just leave you guys. I'll ask you afterwards. Okay. I love leaving you guys hanging. It's great. It's great. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so thankful, God, that your word challenges us and encourages us and makes us think. 
that it's not just theological and technical, but it's also devotional, Lord. And I pray, God, that it pierces our hearts today of thinking about a man who knew next to nothing about you, but understood that when he looked at you, he understood that you were one who could do anything. Father, how wonderful that is, that we would just have simple faith, great faith like that. Help us, Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.